come out of agreement with the lie that you had left me on my own. Oh, I'm not alone. I come out of agreement with the worry and the fear I've come to know. No, they won't have a hold on protector you never 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 let me go you said you wouldn't leave me and you won't you're right by my side protector I come into agreement the truth that you are who you say you are I can trust you with my heart I come into agreement with what heaven has declared over my life cause I know that you fight for me
Well, we're halfway through Lent, and I'll remind you that Lent is the season where we reflect on who we are in Christ, uh, what our faith is. Uh, It's the church's way, historically, of saying it's so easy uh, to be um, so focused on all the challenges of life that we forget uh, who is at the core, and that is the Lord. And so Lent is that season uh, between Ash Wednesday and uh, Easter. So uh, here we are, the first Sunday in March, uh, five weeks out from, uh, actually four weeks out now from, from Easter. Amazing. So uh, how are you doing in that? Are you taking time to reflect and think about your faith? Uh, this month, between now and Easter, we want to focus specifically on, on Jesus. You'd think, well, yeah, it's church. Don't you focus on Jesus every Sunday? Yes, we do. But what we'd like to do is particularly to reflect on this whole theme of, be, of Jesus being among us. Jesus is among us. And there's certain uh, metaphors that are used of Jesus uh, that we want to uh, return to. And today we're going to talk about Jesus the shepherd uh, and, and see where that takes us. So Jesus' words and works continue uh, to inspire us and they continue to confound us. And that's a good thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to read the Gospels and get the, a sense of what's going on. It's a bit more challenging to really understand the context for what's going on. And therefore, if you don't understand the context of the Gospels, what was going on in the first century, how that was a culmination of everything that preceded, it's very easy for us, sort of in a lazy, easy way, to say everything I think and know about life based on living in this century uh, should allow me to simply make assumptions about uh, what happened then and who Jesus is. The problem we get into is we start to minimize Jesus. Uh, we start to dilute the, the message of Jesus. We start to lose perspective on the powerful moment uh, that Jesus' life and ministry represents as a turning point in human history. And therefore, we stop thinking about the immediacy of the fact that Jesus is with us. I mean, how did Jesus uh, do what he did? And then the bigger question is, why did he do what he did? It's easy for us to look back and discount that and and to miss the fact that what Jesus did is as fresh today as it was then. And so what can we learn from him? Is it possible to really know him? And of course, the the answer is is a resounding yes. But to know him, we need to pay attention to him. And by understanding the details of what he said and what he did and understanding more deeply why he said it and why he did it, that would allow us uh, to uh, experience uh, a more real and functional relationship with him. And so Jesus' legacy is still with us, but most importantly, Jesus is still with us. That's what we'll celebrate on, on, on uh, Resurrection Day, on Easter. That every generation uh, has got to come to terms with Jesus. And throughout the various ages and stages, phases of our life, we should be coming to Jesus, updating our understanding uh, of and commitment to Jesus as uh, Lord, Savior, friend. Um, and so when I say every generation must come to terms with Jesus, you know, every generation uh, is receiving from previous generations content about who Jesus is and what, that, what his ministry means. But then each generation also has their own unique, fresh way of saying, well, what about this? And reading the scriptures with a fresh perspective. It's not like we're reinventing Jesus generation to generation, but we're refreshing and renewing our understanding because every generation has its own needs and issues uh, that, that, that they want to explore. 
And so a, a fresh examination of who Jesus is is not only appropriate for every generation, but it's appropriate for each one of us in a generation as we go through the ages and stages and phases of our generation. I hope that makes sense. Uh, it's a long way of saying, are you doing your homework? That is, are you paying a close, close attention to who Jesus is according to what the Bible tells us about him? If not, you're going to find your relationship with him probably less than satisfying, and you'll be in jeopardy at making your relationship with Jesus a projection of what you think he is, what you think he should be about, versus who he is and what he is about. So Jesus won't go away. He's here to stay. He's on the move, making all things new, even as we speak today. Um, Jesus describes, uh, John describes Jesus among us this way. He says out of, in uh, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Uh, powerful words. Uh, grace, charis. Uh, it's, it's about blessing. It's about undeserved, unmerited favor. Uh, really what it is is that it, it's, it's being inclined toward someone. It's leaning in, getting close to them uh, to bless them. It's giving them a gift that they haven't earned or deserved simply because you want to bless them with that gift. Love, forgiveness, acceptance. Grace, a powerful, powerful word, word reminding us of God's unfailing love for us. Sometimes we can see grace as being weak rather than the powerful transformational gift that it is. Jesus came in grace. He also came in truth. Uh, God is truly for us and among us. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. That's what Paul tells us as he writes to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Why is that important? Because truth is faithfully corresponding to reality. That's what truth is about. Faith uh, requires truth because we want to have a, a reality-based faith. So this word aletheia, uh, truth, is about a perfect uh, correspondence to reality. God alone defines reality. It's not my truth and your truth. I know sometimes we use those phrases uh, when we talk about situations to say, you know, my experience, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I know. But when we use the word truth, we, we, we diminish it. We say my truth and your truth. Because there's really only one truth. It's God's truth. What he has revealed to us uh, is reality. And so as we embrace truth, there's obviously the objective, this is true. You can't have your own truth about gravity. But there is a subjective part. But the subjective part is understanding what reality looks like as applied in our own lives. So Jesus comes with grace and with truth. And, and why is he among us? Well, here's why. We have a big problem that we can't fix. And, and, and him coming in grace and truth is to address our big problem, uh, which is this. As Isaiah the prophet tells us, all people are like grass. All their faithfulness, like the flowers of the field, fades. Uh, this is a quite humbling observation that we think we're so important. Uh, we're beloved of God, but we think we're a bigger deal than we probably are. We're like a drop in a bucket, Isaiah tells us. We're like dust on a scale. That, that's a powerful metaphor. Dust on a scale, meaning it doesn't even register. Generations come and go. 
the book of Ecclesiastes is a bit of a lament on this, an observation on this. And it's not that we want to be cynical. Oh, it doesn't matter. Life isn't that important. People come and go. No. What we want to recognize is this is not the way it's supposed to be. God made us to be in relationship with him, managing his beautiful creation in a way that would glorify him, honor him, and bless people. Somehow uh, that has been mucked up and um, Jesus has come to fix that. We've all gone our own way. Uh, Isaiah tells us, like sheep, we've all gone astray. This is not looking good, is it? By comparison, God is strong. He inspires awe. His word endures forever. He's loving, righteous, good, and compassionate. His steadfast love never ceases. He's constancy personified. You can count on God. His tender mercies are new every morning. What God is, we are not. What we are, God is not. A big gap, a big gulf. And, and the Lord came to bridge that gap, to cross that massive gulf so that we could be reunited in relationship with Him. I love the way Isaiah says it in Isaiah 40, uh, verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Uh, this is a very beautiful expression of, of God's power applied to us in ways uh, that fully express uh, his, his grace and his truth. And then Jesus describes himself as the gate and the good shepherd. Now, <clears throat> the power of this, and this is one of the reasons why we're focusing on Jesus and some of the roles um, that he expressed about himself uh, and the metaphors that others use of him, is that uh, Israel understood that God represented himself as a shepherd, gathering his lambs in his arms, carrying them close to his heart. And then Jesus appropriates that title, the Good Shepherd. So in the first century, this would have been uh, quite impactful. Hey, did you hear what he just said? He just said, he's the Good Shepherd. God's the Good Shepherd. Isaiah 40, 11. Powerful, powerful declaration. And so we see this in John chapter 10, verses 9 to 15. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And, and the gate representing the, the access to where the sheep are. He says, they will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The good shepherd, uh, I have come that they may have life, uh, and I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Lots of false prophets, uh, leaders that care about their own interests and not the interests of others. Um, and yet, all the while, we yearn for a good shepherd. Then the wolf attacks the flock and it scatters. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. We can only know the Father because we know the Son. Jesus, the visible expression of the invisible God. 
This is an outrageous and audacious statement if it were not true. But we see in his word and his deed, Jesus uh, proved this in terms of what he said and what he did. Jesus' authority came from the fact that when people heard him speak and we saw what he did, they said, this is in fact what we'd expect God, his Messiah, to look like and be like. I don't mean look like physically, but this is what we'd expect of God in our presence. And the funny thing that we see here, the interesting thing, this is the first point I want to make, is that Jesus' grace and truth is expressed in humility and vulnerability. God himself did not have to come down uh, to sacrifice himself for us. But in an act of humility and vulnerability, he does just that. Uh, The way Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 8, talking about this, he says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Jesus, who was God, emptied himself, took on the form of a, a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, it goes on to say that God raised him, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. We'll celebrate that on Easter Sunday. But we see this profound and beautiful thing, that Jesus among us, a king coming into the world he owns and cares for, comes into this world in humility and vulnerability, bearing grace and truth. Now, humility and vulnerability tend to sound like weak words in our culture. Now, we'd say, no, humility is really an important thing. We, we, we admire that. Yes, we do. But when we talk about a person of humble means or a humble person, we're often actually saying they're weak. They're not effective. They have little influence. Uh, perhaps we're saying they're immature. They're unwise. They're indecisive. Uh, when we talk about vulnerable, we mean at risk. I mean, we could say of ourselves we're all vulnerable. We're at risk. We're at risk of getting COVID. We're at risk of getting cancer. We're at risk of having all kinds of things happen to us, getting in all kinds of trouble, like sheep without a shepherd. But to talk about God as vulnerable is another thing. How could God be vulnerable? Well, this is the interesting thing about grace and truth embodied in Christ. He is humble. Not that he's immature, untutored, He's not insecure, passive, inauthentic, or deceptive. He's not indecisive. He's not fragile. But he's humble and vulnerable. And these are strengths that he brings as our good shepherd. Willing to face our enemy and even sacrifice himself for us. That's the ultimate humility and vulnerability. Whereas the hired hand runs away, saving their own skin. What's the implication of this for us? Well, Uh, either to reject him and say, well, so what? I don't care. Or to receive him, which perhaps you've already done. Lord, come into my life. I I believe in you. Uh, To believe in him and to learn from him. To receive him, to welcome him in, to believe in him, to say, look, I I believe who you are and what you say is true. And then learning from him. Uh, Humbly yielding yourself to him. Opening your life to him in an act of vulnerability. He's come to restore you. He's come to renew you. He's come to reconcile you in relationship with himself and with yourself and with all people and all creation. And how do we get there? Well, it's, it's an act of his grace that makes that possible. But then we have to learn how to appropriate it. So we see in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle 
and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is an incredible thing. Again, the king coming into his own saying, I'm going to teach you. You're going to learn from me. I've come to empower you and impart to you every good and perfect gift. John said this in the opening of his gospel as well. From the fullness of his grace, we've received every blessing. This is the God that we're reflecting on during Lent and that we will be celebrating. Uh, We celebrate every Sunday. We will celebrate on Easter Sunday. And he said, I will be with you always. And therefore we can have assurance that he is among us. He said, look, I will be with you always to, to the very end of the age when all things are ultimately reconciled and made new. In the meantime, I am with you. So Jesus is among us. Now let me ask you this question. Are you feeling restless these days? And I think the answer is, of course you are. It's been a rough year, hasn't it? We've been yoked to heavy burdens, the heavy burden of of the coronavirus and all the implications and consequences of that. Um, Everybody Jesus was speaking to also was burdened. So he knows what it is to speak to people um, weighed down with burdens. So who needs more of that by, by taking a yoke upon yourself? Uh, economic yokes, social yokes, COVID yokes, bad yokes. Uh, the, the, the second point would be this. Jesus' yoke is a good yoke. If his grace and truth is expressed in humility and vulnerability, then this, this idea follows that, that Jesus' yoke is a good yoke. It's a living connection with his grace and truth. What does he mean when he says, take my yoke upon you? Well, it's, it's, it's learning to live abundantly with Jesus, who is gentle and humble in heart. And rather than making us more restless, he brings rest to our souls. And to say rest to our souls doesn't mean in just some religious sense, but he brings rest, restoration. He brings his shalom into every part of our life. He unifies our life in the shalom of God. That's what it means to have rest for your souls. It's not to kick back and, and check out. It's to all of a sudden be so enlivened and become fully engaged that you're living out of your sweet spot, even in the face of life's biggest challenges. I love the way Augustine wrote it in his uh, Confessions, book one of his Confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We will always be restless until we find our rest in him. And in fact, even after you believe in him, you will experience restlessness. Why? Because uh, there's so much you don't know. We don't know. But he's teaching us. But we're learning now how to appropriate that rest, that restoration, that Sabbath, that perpetual, eternal Sabbath rest that gives us the shalom of God. Uh, we got, we've got to be humble and vulnerable. Lord, I need it. I'm willing to receive it, even though I can't control it. I can make decisions about this salvation but I'm yielding myself to you. In fact, I'm dying to myself in order to live in you. So I'm being humble, recognizing that I need it, and vulnerable in that I'm going to trust you with my life. This is not an easy thing to do, right? It requires an open mind, an open heart, open hands. Have you done that? And if you have done that, are you doing that? It's so easy to get close enough and then hold back. But if we do that, And when we do that, we feel that nagging restlessness again. It's only as we feel that restlessness that we say, Lord, I think there's more for me. What is it that you want to teach me in the context, in the face of this restlessness that I'm feeling? Maybe you feel restless in your marriage. Maybe you feel restless in your roles as a parent, as a colleague, a a collaborator at work. Maybe you're feeling restless about any number of things. 
That's not the time to say, uh, I'm not going to let God in here. It might be uncomfortable. He might make me do something I don't want to do. Rather you say, Lord, look at this. Here's where I am. I'm restless. Meet me at this, in this restlessness. Teach me what you want to teach me. All of a sudden we become fully engaged in our own life. And what happens? Grace and truth pour in. Because we're wearing his yoke. We're living under his authority. And it's perfect for us. See, it's not take my yoke and put it on top of all your other yokes. Take my expectations and put them all on top of everybody else's expectations. That'll really bury you. No, it's saying drop those other yokes, discard them. They're not, they're not helping you. Throw them away. You only need one yoke of authority, and it's the Lord. Because in his authority, he's teaching you how to live. And therefore, any other authority that you submit to and work with in life, you're doing so under the cover, under the protection of his grace and his truth. Now we do that with humility and vulnerability, knowing that the very power of God is poured into us through his grace and truth as we're humble and vulnerable. And so it's not yoke upon yoke. Oh dear God, now I have the the Jesus yoke. It's, oh, thank God, I've got the Jesus yoke. That Jesus himself is giving me the strength I need uh, to make my way through life with a heart that's full of hope and promise, that when I feel depleted and I just want to quit the worst way, he gives me the wisdom and discernment to draw on his truth, to draw on his grace in a way that restores me and refreshes me. So the Lord is among us in grace and truth. Where do you need that right now? Where do you need his grace and his truth? Now he's giving it to you. So when I ask where do you need it, it's are you aware of your need for it? And are, are you responding to him in such a way that you can benefit from the grace he is giving you, he's providing for you, me, and the truth he wants us to understand? Again, your truth and my truth is inadequate. His truth is what we need. And so as you look at a, any particular situation, maybe it's just a floating anxiety in you, but especially if you can focus on particular things that are causing you um, restlessness, making life difficult. Again, that's the kind of place where you can say, Lord, what do I need to understand about your word and your ways and your will as it relates to these thoughts and feelings and temptations and pressures that I'm feeling and experiencing? See, he came to teach us how to live humbly open and alive to his grace and truth. This is this ongoing promise. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. Now, this word sheep is not meant to you know, diminish us, uh, to disrespect us as people. He's made us in his image. What it says, though, is without him, we do get off track, we do go astray. We are vulnerable in all the wrong ways. We don't know how to make our way uh, uh, in the face of so many wolves that would devour us. Think about that. A great education, uh, affluence even, doesn't protect you from being devoured. You can be devoured by all kinds of things. There's no hiding place from being devoured by all the enemies of our soul. The only sure antidote, the only real protection, the only adequate response is to be strong in Christ, alive in Christ. And that's what he's offering us as the good shepherd. See, because this good shepherd doesn't treat us as perpetual sheep. And to change the analogy and the metaphor, he equips his people for ministry. He's forming us into a holy temple filled with his spirit.
He's releasing in us gifts that allow us to bless others in his name. And so you see, we're, we're sheep in the sense that we're vulnerable without him. But we're beloved sons and daughters in him. And this is your true nature, your true stature. And so you've got to learn from your loving Heavenly Father, the Good Shepherd. The third point then would be this. Learning from Jesus is inspiring, it's energizing, it's emboldening. Inspiring. It it gives you a new, larger perspective on who you are and who He is. It gives you resilience, it gives you perseverance, it gives you resources. Not because all of a sudden you've, you've come into your right mind on your own terms, but because you're coming into your right mind on His His word is giving you hope and perspective. Failure isn't final. Uh, Success isn't your ultimate goal. Being alive. Being alive is the only adequate definition and description for who we are. And in, in that sense, being alive, we can say yes, we can say no. We can try things, and even if we fail, we can recover. We can learn to be uh, 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 willing to risk, but not necessarily reckless. We become wise and discerning. Not that we're becoming perfect, but we're becoming able to respond in real time uh, to God's leadership. This is a powerful thing. This is a powerful thing to have the Good Shepherd constantly with you, among you, among us, saying, I'm with you, I'm leading you, I'm guiding you. Uh, This is not happy talk. This is biblical truth made possible by God's grace. You gain your true life. So you're inspired, you're energized, you're emboldened. That's, that's a, it's a, about being confident. Again, not confident just in you, but confident that he will lead you and guide you. But your old nature will resist this kind of change. You see uh, in Paul's letters, uh, after the Gospels and all those other letters uh, written by uh, Paul and, and Peter, the writer of Hebrews, uh, our, our old nature resists this change. And the enemy of our soul, uh, Satan, the devil, will say, hey, I can't make you do anything, but I sure would like to influence you. Did God really say, is this really true? Will this really work? And so our nature says, yeah, I wonder, I wonder if there's a better deal for me. And it's not with God. So we resist change. Oh, we'll say, I'll go this far, but I don't know if I want to go further. It might be too costly. And we rationalize away what God wants to teach us. We don't see how real it is, how big it is, how beautiful it is. We don't see how good and liberating it is. And so what do we do? We settle for so much less when he wants to give us so much more. And by so much more, I don't mean just in terms of material goods. Certainly he wants to teach us prosperity in the, in, the, in the biggest, best perspective. Prosperity of spirit that translates into prosperity of, of, of life. Whether we have a little or a lot, we'll have prosperity, which means we're alive and well in him. Because we're humble and vulnerable through his grace and his truth. Uh, don't fall prey to the prosperity gospel thinking, which says, if you do certain things, God is obligated to bless you and make you wealthy beyond your imagination. If you become wealthy beyond your imagination, it's not because uh, you, you know, God owed you something. It's because God is, is allowing you to experience some things that you can use to bless other people. But real prosperity is saying, you know what? I have the confidence to call him Lord. I have the confidence to know that he calls me his beloved son or daughter by faith. 
I have the confidence to know that nothing and no one can separate me from his love. I have the confidence to know that he loves me no matter what. I have the confidence to know that his truth is absolutely, absolutely corresponding to reality. You see, you lose nothing that matters. You gain everything that matters. So somebody said to you, gosh, don't you wish you had more money? You might say, well, yeah, of course, but I, I feel so prosperous in the way that I'm living because I know the Lord. I see it in the fruit of his spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm seeing all these great things that God is giving me in spite of the fact that, yeah, I, I don't maybe have some of the things I want, but I've, I've got all the things I need. So that when you get everything you want, you know what to do with it. The worst thing you can do to somebody is to give them everything they want when they're not prepared to know what, what to do with it. It destroys them. It crushes them. Uh, it's, it's an old cliche. It's, it's banal. The, the, the idea that, 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 that fame and fortune can ruin a person. Why? Because fame and fortune are bad? No. What's bad is when we're not prepared to know what prosperity really looks like. To prosper in Him. The one who wants to give us what matters. And give us what really counts. So if you were to write your mission statement from this perspective, your heart would soar. My mission is to know and serve God. My mission is to, to, to thoroughly enjoy His love and extend it to other people. My mission is to use everything in my hands uh, as, mo- as creatively as I can. That if God puts an idea in my mind or something on my heart, a passion, I'm going to pursue that. And I hope to achieve it and, and to succeed at it. But if not, just the journey was worth it. You see how powerful and transformational this is? It's your relationship with Him that allows you to prosper and thrive in life. And this is just because He's the Good Shepherd. He wants this for you. I'll go back to what I said before. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms. He carries them close to His heart. If you try something great and you fail, you're still in His arms and close to His heart. If you rebel against him and disobey him, it's heartbreaking. There's bad consequences, but what? He still carries you in his arms. He still holds you close to his heart. That's how you prosper and thrive and flourish in life. It sounds crazy, but it's even crazier to ignore that he's among us, working in us to bless us. I I heard a podcast recently. A friend of mine was interviewing a friend of his. And it was quite the interesting interview uh, with this young woman who had this great dream uh, uh, to create a product that would help women with uh, problem skin. And uh, it was powerful to read, uh, not read, but to listen to her story. As She, she said, you know, I, I believe this is what God wanted me to do. He put it on my heart. And so I did everything I could to, to get it right. And, and after three years of no, 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 uh, I, was, I thought I was pretty much done, out of money, out of energy, uh, out, of, out of any other people who would be willing to listen to me. And uh, th- this woman, Jamie Kern Lima, um, came to this moment of truth where, you know what, I, I might fail. And, and, and some of her advisors were telling her that she had to, to change the very value that caused her to appropriate this vision uh, from God in the first place. Uh, and, and, and here she was in tears at her big moment to make her big pitch. And they're saying, you've got to do it this way. And she knew that if I do it that way, it's not true to who I am. 
And if I fail at doing it in a way that's not true to who I am, that's a bitter failure. But if I'm true to who I am and I fail, that's okay. I will recover. Well, as it turns out, it, she, he, she had a breakthrough and ended up having massive, massive success. She created a, a, a cosmetics company called IT Cosmetics. You, you can look it up in a powerful story. Right now, her book I, I saw yesterday was number one uh, in the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. Um, powerful read, great story. And again, the, 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 the big ta-da, aha, wasn't I sold my company for a billion dollars. You should trust God too. It was, I trusted God, period. I trusted God, period. That's a lesson that I learned. And, and yeah, thank God that my business uh, prospered and I, and I could do a lot of creative things with the money to honor and glorify Him and bless people. But the main thing for us is to know that we are in the arms of God. He holds us close to His heart. He's pouring His grace and His truth into our lives with humility and vulnerability. And if in humility and vulnerability we take His yoke upon us, nothing and no one can separate us from the biggest, best dream of all. That we have a life eternal, living fully now and fully forever. Fully, fully forever now and in Him. This is powerful. Embrace this. Receive this. Think on this during Lent. So that when you celebrate Easter, you're going to say, yes, I celebrate the life I experienced through my good shepherd. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and having blessed it, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? His grace and His truth. What are we receiving and celebrating? His grace and His truth. And what confirms that for us? Humility and vulnerability. Humility and vulnerability are qualities that will allow you to appropriate His grace and His truth against any kind of challenge against any kind of barrier, against any kind of doubt. You will never have a barrier, you'll never have a doubt that you belong to Him. And so, remember you're filled with His truth and grace. Be humble and vulnerable like Him. Uh, He's among us with arms wide open toward us. Open your arms wide to Him. Lord Jesus, this is my prayer for, for me, for my family, for my friends, for everyone listening to this message. I thank you for the examples you give us in our own lives and in the lives of other people. Your grace and your truth are more than enough. In fact, they're everything. And that in hum- humility and vulnerability, we can emulate you and appropriate all these good and perfect gifts that you've given to us from the fullness of your goodness and your love. I pray, Lord, that we'd have the courage of our convictions to trust you, to take your yoke upon us, to find rest for our souls in a restless world. I pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord's light reflect all over you, washing you, bathing you in the light of his glory and grace, and then reflecting from you in the goodness that comes to those who know him and walk with him in truth and grace.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.